During the Second World War, C.S. Lewis published an essay entitled First and Second Things. It's a, a short but remarkable read. His simple contention was that in this life, things need to be done in the right order if they are to work out as they should. First things, the most important things, need to come first. You can't put a roof on a house without first building the walls and the foundations. There's a pattern and a rhythm and an order to the world, a way in which things are designed and intended to be. And this is at the heart of what C.S. Lewis wrote in this essay. He said, you can't get second things by putting them first. You can get second things only <clears throat> by putting first things first. From which would follow the question, what is the first thing? And it's a powerful question that each of us might take a moment now to ask. What is the first thing? What matters most in my life? It's certainly a question that Daniel would understand. Earlier on in the book, when uh, King Nebuchadnezzar is selecting people to serve in his court... Those who were chosen were expected to have some basic qualities. They were expected to be strong, healthy, and good-looking, very much like Jago. Well-versed in every branch of learning, also like Jago. Gifted with knowledge and good sense, with the poise needed to serve in a royal palace. And Daniel had left a deep impression on a succession of kings... Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and now Darius. He had something about him. And perhaps the most important thing of all was that he and his companions, his friends, had a clear track record for placing God before men. In Daniel chapter 1, when they had been offered the richest of food to consume from the king's table, Daniel and his friends declined. It says in verse 8 of chapter 1, Daniel resolved not to defile himself. In Daniel chapter 3, his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to bow before the golden statue and as a consequence were thrown into the fiery furnace. And if you're familiar with either of those two stories, you'll know that both ended well for the people concerned. First and second things. And as we come to the start of Daniel chapter 6, the story before us today, we find Daniel staring down the barrel of another dilemma. Darius is the king now. He's appointed Daniel to a senior position and has in mind for him something even more senior. But perhaps inevitably, others are jealous. And they try to find fault with Daniel. If you have a look in verse 4. But they can't find a thing. 
Daniel is faithful and honest and always responsible. They literally cannot find a single fault with him. And so in verse 5, they choose a path of deception. They realize that the only way they're going to catch him is in relation to his faith. And so they persuade the king to issue a decree, the consequence of which means a really simple choice for Daniel. Either he bows down in worship before the king and by definition denies his own God, or he gets thrown to the lions. Except for Daniel, it really doesn't seem to have been a choice at all. doesn't seem to be any doubt into his, in his mind as to what he would do. And verse 10 that Jago read for us, when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with his windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done. But what did he stand to lose in doing so? Well, his job, his livelihood, his status and his position in society, his reputation, and ultimately, of course, his life. He stood to lose every single thing that this world has to offer. But for Daniel, the choice didn't even seem to be a close one. Let me tell you briefly about a man called Jim Elliot. Uh, there'll be a picture of him pop up on the screen in a second. Some of you will have come across him before. He was an American missionary who lived and worked among indigenous tribes in the jungles of Ecuador back in the 1950s. And in 1956, his calling cost him his life. He and four traveling companions were killed in the mission field. Uh, if you're interested, their, their story is told in a book called Through Gates of Splendor. But I mention him now because like Daniel, Jim Elliot appeared to have no doubts at all about what truly mattered in life. His faith in God defined him. And absolutely everything else was of secondary importance. This is what Jim Elliot had to say about the journey that lay before him. It'll come up on the screen. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I love it. He is no fool, she is no fool who gives what they cannot keep to gain what they cannot lose. It's a principle that Daniel understood with absolute clarity. All that this world had to offer him was as nothing in comparison to the priceless privilege of knowing God. He had his eyes fixed firmly on heaven. And so for each one of us, what is the first thing? What is it that matters most in my life? Just as an aside, I, 
as I was reading the passage, I, I kind of, it struck me, why didn't Daniel just close his windows and avoid all the bother? He could have kept on praying without being seen. Two reasons, I think. One was that he was completely unwilling to compromise. And the other was that he was unafraid. Like many other people, my, my favorite film is, is The Shawshank Redemption. Um, uh, and the poster is going to appear up on the screen. I don't know if you can see Yeah, written across the top there. Fear can hold you prisoner. Hope can set you free. Daniel was unafraid. And as he knelt to pray by that open window, his hope was in the living God. And so the trap set by Daniel's enemies, if we come to verse 12, actually works. Or at least it appears to have done. Despite the king's protestations, he worked out by now that he'd been played. There was no choice but to abide by the decree that had been given. Daniel was led to the lion's den. But Darius did at least have the last word. He said, may your God, whom you worship continually, rescue you. And what happened that night? Who fared better, actually, over the next 12 hours? Was it Daniel or Darius? Well, we know about the king from the passage. We know that he wouldn't eat. We know that he refused his usual entertainment. We know that he couldn't sleep. The reality is he had an absolutely miserable night. Um, Daniel, by contrast, I like to think had a fairly magical one. We're told some in the passage, and we can have fun imagining the rest. He didn't get eaten. Actually, he encountered an angel sent by God. And the mouths of the lions were closed. In fact, I like to imagine him actually playing with the lions. I'm going to play you a very short YouTube clip. You may have come across it before. It's the story of a lion called Christian, which is helpful if you're going to use it as a sermon illustration. Uh, uh, and he was, uh, we're going back several years now, uh, 30 or 40 years, uh, and a gay couple bought him in the pet shop at Harrods. And eventually he became too big to keep at home and so was released back into the wild in Africa. And this two-minute clip shows the first time that the two guys met Christian the lion after he'd been released into the wild. And as you watch it, I want you to think of Daniel in the den. Ultimately, this is what we know for sure from verse 23. Not a scratch was found on him because he trusted in God. Now, there's an important question to ask at this point just before I finish. What about those for whom the story doesn't appear to end well? What about those who do get scratched by lions? What about Jim Elliot and his friends? What about the countless martyrs down the ages? What about you and me when we struggle and we suffer despite a deep and true desire to trust in God? They're difficult questions. And I don't pretend to have any easy answers. The only clue I can offer comes from an earlier chapter of Daniel 3, verse 18. And we're back with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are 
facing the fiery furnace. And this is what they say. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we are not going to serve your gods. It's about first and second things. And I know of no better life than the kingdom life. And I know of no better way than the way of love. And I know of no greater hope than the hope of heaven. Who or what are the gods of this age? Is it wealth or power or status or popularity or pleasure? To who or what will we bow? Who or what will be the first thing in our lives? And I'll finish with two earthly kings. The first is one of the old kings of Norway. He was a God-fearing man. And a friend told me a story concerning his coronation. He was crowned in a, in a magnificent ceremony as his people looked on. But what was to be his first act as king? His choice was to take communion. And when asked about it later on, he said that as the newest of kings, he wanted to bow the knee before the king of kings. And in Daniel chapter 6, the last word belongs to another earthly king, Darius, who issues a new decree, one that doesn't involve lions this time. I decree that everyone throughout my kingdom should tremble with fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, and he will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his rule will never end. He rescues and saves his people. He performs miraculous signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. The God of Daniel is the first thing. Before everything, him and you and I are called to love him with all our hearts and with all our souls and with all our minds and with all our strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And that right there is the whole meaning of life.